Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Chips, a new podcast with Vice Sports. My name is Aaron. I'm a staff writer with Vice Sports. And joining me on the line is Will McGee from the Vice UK office. Will, how are you doing today? Yes, I'm, I'm very well, thank you, Aaron. Very well. Wow, that's great considering that Arsenal got shellacked over the weekend. Uh, yeah, well, um, I'm still quite drunk, so um, it's all fine, basically. <laughs> That's good. That's the way to live life. And it's the holidays, so you can pretty much be drunk all the time and nobody can say anything. Yeah, we're coming back to this. This will actually basically make up a whole segment of the podcast. So, uh, yeah, when we talk about Christmas football, we can come back to how, how drunk people in Britain are right now. That's right. Uh, so, quick word on what this podcast is, since this is the first episode. Um, it's a podcast about soccer, or as Will would say, it's a podcast about football. We're not going to debate which of those terms is more appropriate, because even though this is a podcast with an American and a Brit talking about soccer, we want to be inclusive here at Chips. Uh, This is a global game. You can call it whatever the hell you want. And we're definitely, definitely not going to give you a history lesson on the whole soccer association football roots, because that's just stupid. And everybody knows that words develop their own meaning over time. And the abbreviation route just really doesn't matter anymore. Anyways, we want to hear from you, our audience, because this is new and we want to make sure you guys are having fun listening to it. So uh, we have an email account that you guys can can email us at. It's chips at vicesports.com. If you include your postal address in the email, I will send you a handwritten reply to your email. Uh, this is not a joke. I will actually do this. So please do send us questions, comments, concerns relationship advice, whatever you need. Uh, We're here for you at Chips. And we also have Twitter. Uh, It's at Chips Podcast. And we will tweet things. I don't know. I'd much rather send you handwritten letters, to be honest. Will, you got anything else for people before we get started? No, no, I just, no, I agree. Twitter's boring. Send us the abuse via email. You get more characters. That's true. And like the abuse goes on longer so that people ramble more. And then you just end up with much funnier abuse getting hurled at you. As opposed to Twitter, where they just come up with like one sentence and send it to you. And you're just like, God, that was, it's either, like, that was horribly uncreative. Like, I want, I want better abuse hurled at me. Yeah, exactly. Abuse us for your email, then we'll screen grab it and post that on Twitter, and that will just bypass the whole character problem, basically. Yeah, that's a good plan. Speaking of abuse, Bob Bradley was, like, maybe going to get fired if he didn't beat Sunderland, but then they did beat, was it Sunderland? Am I remembering this correctly, like, two weeks ago, Will? Uh, yeah, I believe it was Sunderland, yes. Although, yeah, I think we better <laughs> check that. 
there's too there's too much soccer. It's hard to remember it all. Anyways, Bob Bradley won a critical relegation battle game. Everyone, you know, seemed like they were going to give him a bit of a break. You know, like, oh, he's only been in charge of Swansea for a month. Maybe we should give him a bit longer than that before we start calling for him to be fired. Um, that didn't last very long because this weekend he the Swansea once again lost and they really didn't look particularly great in the process. Uh, and after the game, I guess. He did a post-game interview where he used a few Americanized terms. Uh, I think PK was the big one instead of penalty, which for any listeners out there who don't live in the U.S., like this is pretty common. Like We call penalties PKs because we abbreviate everything in the U.S. We just don't have time to say full words here. I think that's you know pretty, pretty understandable. But anyways, uh, I guess like a certain subset of Twitter users then started to harangue, you know, started to tweet angrily about... Bradley using PK, but it didn't arise to like the point where where people were actually writing columns about it. Like the press wasn't angry about it, but it's you know just the latest in in a you know the in Bradley's tenure in which people have wondered how his Americanness will affect uh, his ability to manage in the EPL. So. Will, my question to you is, like, obviously in America, it's kind of hard to judge what the attitudes are like towards Bradley over there. Obviously, people aren't very pleased with the results, but it's hard to tell how serious a, a problem this, like, attitude towards an american is. Is this just, like, a made-up thing, or are people really, like, judging him because of the way he speaks? Uh, I'm not—I I don't think people are judging him because of the way he speaks. I think there's definitely, like, a level of parochialism in, in English football in the Premier League where— you know, people are like, you know, quite possibly judging him or prejudging him because he's American. You know, we, yeah, you know, we basically have a superiority complex about, you know, soccer and PKs and all the stuff you're talking about. But in terms of this, like, latest thing with, with the actual saying of the PK in the post, in the post match press conference and the kind of controversy in inverted commas that has uh, arised after that, I think that's been very, like you say, it's kind of, a bit of a storm in a teacup considering that the main criticism seems to have come from not only like Twitter users, but also Twitter users who are quite clearly taking the piss. So it's not really like, it's not even really serious analysis. It's just kind of like the sort of normal stuff you get on Twitter. And then it's almost like been transformed into an actual, like almost like a bit of a transatlantic to and fro kind of like they have a beef sort of thing. So I think someone was, um, tweeting earlier that Wales Online, who are like a local paper in Wales, where obviously Swansea is, sorry, just that's just a bit of patronising geography. I, I, I'm assuming everyone knows where Swansea is. But um, yeah. I'll explain to you where like Kentucky is yeah. at some point in the podcast. Come back so. with like some Minnesotan geography and whatever in a minute. But um, yeah, basically, you know, in the local press in Wales, there was kind of a bit, you know, some analysis that was kind of saying... Uh, a lot of Americans are outraged about the treatment of Bob Bradley, but basically the treatment of Bob Bradley was at best a collection of like not many tweets of people kind of joking about his, um, you know, choice of, of language in post-match presser. And then apart from that, it was kind of pretty much nothing. And, you know, it was almost like basically the thing that was at the heart of this, you know, are uh, the American press are angry. And I think in the, you know, in, I think USA, USA Today were mentioned and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. So it kind of made it feel like it was quite a substantial thing and that a lot of like American pundits were angry. But at the same time, 
it was basically based on a load of tweets and Wales Online's comeback to their anger was also based on a load of tweets. So it seemed, it seemed, uh, yeah, highly insubstantial. This theme of Twitter being the worst just seems to keep carrying forward segments to segment. I imagine we won't drop it for the length of the Chips podcast because, I mean, it's just a recurring theme. Uh, I don't, I don't, what I really don't understand is why in a league where foreign managers and foreign players I don't, I don't know if they make up a majority of the league anymore but it's probably if the, if it is a majority it's if it's an, I mean if it's not a majority it's pretty close um look there are a ton of foreigners in, in the Premier League like why is it such a big deal that this one particular foreigner talks a particular way and I guess what we're kind of learning is it's not a big deal except for a very small subset of people who then get amplified is that like kind of the deal yeah no you're, you're, you're right I mean that's basically like that is what's what's happening here, but it's to do with a specific kind of Anglo-American relationship, certainly from people in like England and Britain's perspective. There is definitely like a trend of, I don't know, basically a superiority complex, certainly when it comes to football in terms of like, you know, America, when we, you know, when we've read in the past, like, um, you know, think pieces and opinion pieces about, you know, the rise of the MLS and stuff. I think there is, I know you have your own views on the MLS, but <laughs> regardless, there, you know, there's certainly a kind of feel, there's like a feeling of people scoffing at that here, you know, scoffing at American, uh, you know, soccer culture and stuff. And, and, and that's kind of why Bradley has been kind of singled out in that way. But, but I have to say that I think a lot of the Bradley debate has almost preempted like the abuse and the parochialism. So in many ways, people have kind of said, Let's not judge him until, you know, we see the results, like, which coincidentally, well, haven't been good. But, you know, people have, people from the very beginning when he got here have basically said, let's not judge him for being American. But actually, not that many people straight away were slating him for being American. In fact, I, I would say basically no one, even on Twitter, really was kind of going for him about that. So it's kind of a bit of a weird one. I'm not sure how much it just fits a narrative where, he has arrived. People have thought, uh, oh, he's going to get some stick because he's American. And then they've tried to preempt that and sort of created it in the process, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of think about like, so in 40 years when the NFL has three teams in London and an entire like culture of children who grew up playing, um, American football in, in England, then start to play in the NFL in their home, you know, in their in their London teams. Obviously, this is a future that is going to happen. Um, I just imagine like how much how much, you know, people from like Kansas and like and like Denver, like some some like backwater, like t small town in Colorado that has like 10 people, but all 10 people drive to Denver for the Broncos games on Sunday. And like what they will do when like a coach comes in and is like, has a thick, like, Liverpudlian Scouse accent and is talking about, like, first downs and, you know, touchdowns. It's like, accidentally slips and says, like, PK instead of foul, you know? And I, I don't know. Like, I'm just... People would freak out here. Like, people would lose their fucking minds if, like, someone with an accent not from America like, started coaching in football. And that's because America is the worst. And I don't want England to be like that like I don't want like the EPL to be like that so it's like I'm glad that this is basically just like a self-perpetuating cycle of made-up hysteria and not actually people being angry that Bob Bradley speaks with an American accent yeah I think I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head I mean I think I think we are a bit like that 
but definitely not as much like that has been suggested in the main, in like the general kind of mainstream football press. And also like, yeah, it's, there's certainly an element of like, there has to be some sort of Bob Bradley as an American narrative. Cause that's kind of what sells. So, I mean, you know, who knows how much people actually care. I think there's a small amount to which people are like, Oh, an American in the Premier League, but basically people aren't, I don't think the average fan the average Swansea fan is that bothered about being American. I think they're more bothered about like losing 3-0 to Middlesbrough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that being said, like Amer- American soccer media is selling Bradley and Swansea pretty hard, which is obviously to be expected. But like NBC, which broadcasts the, the EPL games here, you know, they have like their between game, you know, panel segments. And before Bradley took over for Swansea, I'd be surprised if they had mentioned Swansea like the entire year leading up to that point, other than like when Swansea was, I don't know, like playing Arsenal. So the game was actually broadcast. But since then, I feel like every single week they've discussed Swansea and Bradley. So there, so there's kind of like a, uh, you know, the two sides to every coin thing here where nobody wants Bradley to be getting shit because he's American, but also Swansea absolutely has a higher profile in the U.S. now because they hired an American, and that's the sole reason. So there is kind of like two sides of the same coin there. Yeah, sure. And and I think there's also, I think some of, from what I've sort of seen quite cursorily, but, you know, stuff I've picked up, like, as I say, I was reading this Wales Online article. I read some of the uh, American kind of comments about it and how, as you say, they were like, not wanting him to get shit for being American. I think there's possibly amongst some like commentators in the American press, a feeling of like Bob Bradley has to do well because he's the first American coach. And I don't know, maybe they're preempting patronizing British people being like, Oh, I remember that American coach who came and was really bad sort of thing. So I think maybe there's an element to which they're, they kind of, he's like on their side and they wanted to do well. Like, but I also think they, people underestimate how difficult the Swansea job was in the first place. So there's this kind of thing of like, because he's not getting results at the moment, it almost feels like, a, I don't know, like, ah, blow to America's pride. But it's like, no one really here is thinking about it that way. And I just think maybe, again, that's like a preempted thing, kind of preempting the idea of a lot of very patronizing British football fans forever making jokes about Bob Bradley failing and being American. You know, one last thing before we move on. I just... We'd be remiss not to mention that there's also the element of the American owners coming in and then hiring an American coach and the perception that this was done for reasons other than pure soccer, you know, improving the club strategy. And I I don't really have much to say on that, It's but it's certainly a topic that people have been discussing and I imagine has been of much more um, discussion over there than it is here. Yeah, I mean... I- Possibly. I actually, I think in some ways that that has all been subsumed into this, you know, basically talk about his national identity. But I mean, I think in many ways that could potentially, I mean, I can't really speculate obviously as to what their, the new Swansea owners intentions were when they appointed Bradley or whether they, you know, whether he was the easy option for them because he's a former US coach and he's American and he's a high profile name in American soccer. But, you know, if that, if there is some element of truth to that, that's probably a more um pointed criticism than like anything else about, you know, just lazy stereotyping about America or whatever. Because if it's, if it is a case of American owners going for an American name because they just know it, that's not necessarily like a very clever recruitment strategy. And like when you look at Bob, um, Bob Bradley's recent record with 
not record necessarily, but um, experience with Le Havre and Egypt, you kind of think, I mean, I don't know, I, I'm not sure that that would be something that we would think of as being perfect kind of experience for, you know, going into a Premier League team who you have to get out of the relegation battle. It's quite a weird experience in some ways. So there are certainly some questions hanging over why that point was made, I guess, in the first place. One media frenzy that definitely isn't made up is uh, blaming Mesut Ozil after any time Arsenal loses a big game. And we've seen this time and time again. I mean, for those listeners out there who don't know us, both Will and I are Arsenal fans, but we try and be as non-insufferable as possible. We want you to not non-insufferable. You've really, is that what I meant to say? Yeah, but you've, yeah. you've really outed us there. I mean, I'm a neutral well, I'm a Dulwich Hamlet fan. You're not fan. a neutral. Come on, <laughs> you're just you're just a neutral when Arsenal sucks. I mean, I, I would say in my defence um, that becoming a football journalist, I think, basically debars you from caring about your like boyhood team, mainly because you write so many depressing things about that boyhood team, especially if that boyhood team is Arsenal. That it just kind of crushes your crushes your spirit, I guess, and crushes your will. Okay, so we're both nominal Arsenal fans, I guess. So you can blame you, you can blame any opinions you don't like on or on the fact that we support a team that you probably hate. Anyways, uh so yeah, Arsenal did not play well against Manchester City over the weekend. Uh the scoreline was I think it's fair to say much closer than the actual game. Uh and afterward and and afterwards uh, a lot of pundits, commentators, fans, etc., uh, laid the loss. I would say primarily at Ozil's feet. You know, they they certainly they certainly targeted him as the most underperforming Arsenal player on the day. And this has become basically a tradition since Ozil has joined the club. And I don't know. I'm getting I'm getting really tired of it. Like it's just it's so predictable and so boring. Like every oh, Ozil didn't didn't go in for the tough tackles when they needed him most, you know. And it's like I don't know what that means. Like, I, I, anyways, I'm just gonna ramble if I don't pass this off to you next, Will. So I'm just gonna ask you, like, are you getting tired of this as well, or do you think there's actually like legitimacy to these to these uh, trends of blaming Ozil for everything? Uh, no, it's, it definitely is getting quite tiresome, like any, um, sort of cliche kind of criticism or point that comes up after any game, you know, any player who basically starts to become the focal point of the analysis, whether or not he's actually made like a killer contribution either way. Um, I think there was an interesting piece in, in The Guardian by Barney Rona, who's, I think, their chief football writer, uh, basically saying that Ozil, there's kind of like, there's no middle ground with him. Basically, either he's like, this kind of like balletic figure who's completely failed to do anything in the game and has just kind of danced about attractively, but failed to like do anything whatsoever. Or like he's just an enigma and you don't understand like, but he's actually doing amazing stuff even when you lose three nil sort of thing. So there's kind of like, there's, there's like complete defense of him in the way that it's like, he's actually a genius, but you just don't understand man. And then there's also like complete evisceration of him when he has a game that's where he's a bit kind of, um, He's a bit non-visible. I think it's probably like, it's obviously like somewhere in between. Uh, and that, you know, sometimes like basically he, um, he struggles to impose himself on a game in the way that is like visible. And if you lose, often Mesut Ozil is, is a kind of natural lightning rod for criticism because he, you know, he is quite like what he does is quite mercurial, even when it is effective. 
But uh, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, I, I was kind of wondering what the comparison with American, like American kind of sport culture is, because obviously I do think we do have, again, so, you know, kind of almost like a bit of a fetishization of stuff that's like macho in terms of British sport. You know, it's, you know, we're obviously, we're big rugby fans here and, and as well. And, and there's kind of this, there's often comparisons made between like, you know, the physical elements of rugby and then the kind of like weak willed sort of soft elements of football. So people like footballers like, you know, Roy Keane, who like is a footballer who would have like run about kicking the shit out of people had his team not been playing well. Obviously, Ozil doesn't play that role. And yet it's almost like I do think there's a there's an there's an element of the, of any of like the Arsenal fan base, certainly, but also just of Premier League fans who basically think that because he doesn't run around like a midfield engine and kind of kick the shit up people, he's ineffectual. So, I mean, that is obviously inaccurate, even if it's a bit inaccurate to defend him completely the other way. You know, it's a middle ground, basically. But in America, do you guys, I mean, do you guys fetishize the kind of like the physical elements of sport? Or like when you're watching the Premier League, does that come across? Do people complain about players not, you know, putting a tackle in or like, you know, like putting a reducer in at some point? You know, I think it's a lot more mild than it is over there and I, I, I i'm completely speculating on this completely nuanced cultural phenomenon but my hypothesis would be we have much rougher sports in the u.s for people to love like if you want to watch people kick the shit out of each other man have i got a sport for you it's called american football and every sunday you can just watch people give each other brain damage for 12 hours i mean like if that's what you're into it's over there for you. Um, so I think people tend to gravitate to soccer with a bit of a recognition that the sport isn't about raw physicality. That isn't to say that people don't appreciate a good tackle or whatever, but I think if you're drawn to soccer in this country, then you're not necessarily drawn to people imposing their physical will. Because like those are all cliches that, I mean... You watch like an NFL broadcast and it's just A to Z, wall to wall, physical dominance cliches. So it's like we don't need that in soccer if, if you want it, if you want that. Um, you will get it a lot in, in hockey. Like a lot – I grew up a huge hockey fan and this is – these are cliches that I absolutely recognize from the NHL. Like especially Canadian hockey fans. Um, it's a lot of the same actually. Like um, – I mean, not to go too deep in the weeds, but there's long been the stereotyping of like Canadian players versus Russian players. And the Russian players are like, in this analogy, they'd be like the Ozil types. They're very balletic and they're magical with their movements, but they're not necessarily the biggest bruisers. And it's been a long cliche that if you physically rough them up, you can impose your will on the game, break up their style, and you make them uncomfortable. And the Canadians have always fetishized that style of play. And even now as Canada deals with, or as hockey deals with, um, you know, their own kind of like concussion problem and just trying to make the game safer, they have those tensions. So I think there are a lot of parallels there. Yeah. But the, the criticism of Ozil in this country, it tends to not be along the lines of he's not going in for two footers, you know, or he's not like making those hard tackles. It's just something more more um, nebulous, which is like he, he just disappears. You don't see him, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't have an impact. You know, it's just something more, more, more bland like that. Yeah, no. I mean, that that's very that is similar here. I mean, obviously, not everyone is saying that he should, you know, go in for two foot tackles. But there's there's a kind of like, uh, you're right. It's a bit like. I mean, there's a few players like that who are kind of people assume a style over substance. And I mean, maybe there are to some extent. But you know, 
yeah, I mean, you don't see an assist in the same way that you see like a goal, obviously. I mean, it's an obvious point, but it's still, still kind of a valid one. I think maybe like it's interesting what you say about, you know, in America, if you are into like a real physical sport, you'll go for something else. I think there is a big over, like just cultural difference in that there's a big overlap here between like rugby and football. So, you know, people don't tend to just like watch one or the other. But I also think maybe, I mean, obviously like soccer's become uh, more mainstream in America, you know, more recently. I think in um, in the UK, there's definitely a kind of nostalgia and a harking back to the 70s and 80s, like the real, like the glory days of like English football when, you know, you could just long ball everything and it was kind of great. Although, I mean, that's a stereotype and everyone did that. But, <laughs> you know, it was certainly an era where you were allowed to put in two-footed tackles and elbows and all sorts of like extremely physical, nasty stuff, which is kind of seen with like a, I don't know, like a rose-tinted fondness here where we're like, oh, do you remember those good old days where you just used to be able to like break someone's jaw? Uh, that, those were the honest days. So, I mean, there's certainly an element of that. I think people look taking the long view on football and thinking that like players like Ozil today epitomize everything that's wrong with the kind of like, you know, super tiki-taka, like, you know, um, kind of soft version of non-contact football when actually a lot of English people, a lot of British people hark back rightly or wrongly to a time when it was a proper kind of contact sport. Is it that people like think that those kinds of like rougher tactics would are are like a better way to play the game? Like they would they would yield better results? Or is it that they just like that watching that style of play better? I think it's a fondness for that stuff in and of itself. I'm not sure, you know, I mean obviously there are some pretty tough teams in the Premier League, you know, who like Stoke or West Brom say who, while both of them are having perfectly adequate seasons at the moment or good seasons even are not going to win the Premier League by playing like really tough physical football I don't think people will necessarily expect physicality to yield better results but it's almost like a I don't know there's I, I and it's not everyone feels like this but but some I think some people see it as a kind of like an honorable way to like lose say so if you're really physical you're really tough you impose yourself on the other team if you still lose because that other team are better better than you at least you can kind of come off the field saying like, well, you know, we gave it our best shot sort of thing. And like, you know, we, we were off a few feathers. And I think we've definitely, like in Britain, you know, we've kind of got a, we do have a bit of a cultural inclination towards that. I think we like that. We like that kind of, um, not result, but, but you know, if, if, if we lose, we can cope with it if we've like, if we feel that we've, you know, basically, as I say, we're off a few feathers. So yeah, there's like, um, I suppose it's all part of like the underdog mentality. We're big fans of the underdog here. So if the underdog doesn't have the like close control skill of Mesa Ozil, the underdog has to like be able to kick Mesa Ozil really hard in the shins to slightly mix my metaphors, but you see what I'm going, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean, you, it's just like, it's just another way of saying like, we, we want to, we, we gave 110% and we left it all out on the field. No regrets. You know, it is like, and that's like such a, uh, such a childish way of thinking about sports. Like these dudes are the best in, like they're among the best people in the world at what they do. And they obviously like are trying very hard. It's just like, do you really need, I, I don't know. And, and specifically with Ozil though, before before we we move on, I just like I don't understand how uh, observers of the game can be so like thick about what he contributes. Like he's not 
a midfield bruiser. Like, that's not his role. And to ask him to do that would would only exacerbate Arsenal's problems. And you actually kind of saw this a little bit against City. Like, City had the ball the entire half. Ozil started to try and, like, drop, you know, deeper into the midfield to... um, try and serve a bigger role in pressing and it just like didn't work like he wasn't good at it and then he wasn't available when they did win the ball or he turned it over because he just doesn't operate in that space and it was like I don't understand what people want from him you know it's like they want to fit the square peg into the round hole and then make the round hole square like it just it doesn't work and so I don't understand what the point of all this is yeah and it's a bit like how in previous seasons people have criticized Ozil for not scoring enough goals and kind of being like over reliant on the assist as a kind of like a means of winning a game. This season, he suddenly started to score goals and be in different positions and actually like contribute in terms of, you know, finishing. And now people are kind of questioning, yeah, whether, whether or not he's producing enough assists, which like you say, you know, square pegs around holes and like round hole square pegs or whatever. And, um, also basically the complaints are pretty much the same as when he was a kind of nimble toed assist wizard, which is basically just like, yeah, you know, he's a bit invisible. He doesn't step up in the big games. This is another like kind of cliche, which basically means, you know, he's not there doing a kind of Keenan Vieira with whoever his midfield, um, you know, partner is. And then, yeah, the cliches are basically he's kind of, you know, he's a bit lightweight and that's pretty much as much as people can come up with about him. But no, you're right. It's a very, that is quite a, quite a sort of facile way of thinking about what Mesut Ozil does, I guess. And, you know, the fact is just because of the nature of his position, like, you know, the the primary creative midfielder, if Arsenal aren't playing well and Arsenal are on the way to a loss, the creative midfielder takes a large burden for that because he's meant to have, you know, you know, created more, I guess. And, you know, that is an unforgiving position to be in. He's He's very exposed kind of both on the field and in the press, consequently. So, I mean, in many ways... Yeah, the criticism of him is kind of inevitable when Arsenal don't do well. And the only way he can kind of like uh, negate that is if Arsenal win games. But yeah, it's, that's not entirely up to him. I mean, he's obviously one of 11. So yeah, it's a, it's quite a complex one, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just, it just bums me out. Like he's, he's one of the most fun players to watch when he's at the top of his game. And like, he's not always at the top of his game and that's fine. But I don't know. It's just, I, I just find it a bummer that people like, want to get on his case so badly when he provides so many moments of pure brilliance but anyways um that's enough about Mezzozo I'm getting sad and upset and it's the holiday season there's no reason for that um let's try and let's try and think positively about about ah fuck I hate (laughs) Christmas um so we wanted to kind of like talk about the difference in sporting cultures between the U.S. and the U.K. around Christmas time around the holidays because like Obviously, the English Premier League treats the holidays as like a time when athletes should have to play every fucking day and season should be ruined because hamstrings get pulled and Achilles get torn. Um, but we have a different attitude towards towards uh, holidays and sport, and we thought we'd kind of just like go on about that for a while while you um, hopefully enjoy it. Uh, Will, what is... What is, like, the deal with sport around the holidays over there? First, I should just say I really liked that segue there where you kind of went, oh, like, we should stay happy because of festive. And now let's talk about festive football because that was, like, that was just clever. Um, but... Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then, and, and then I, I, and then I talked for, you know, like, 
20 seconds too long so you know you win some you lose yeah um in terms of no i mean sorry i mean no but um in terms in terms of uh (laughs) like what we do with festive football here i mean i I actually i wrote an article about this earlier this week um about how i did did, yeah um read it on vice sports uk i didn't read it so oh no it's fine no I i don't read your stuff either um, but <laughs> no, I, um, I basically was writing about how we have a real cultural thing in the UK where we just love festive football. And I was kind of speculating as to what the reasons for that might be. My personal view is that basically after like five days of seeing your family who you haven't seen for like a year since the last Christmas, you just want to like basically either go and retreat into the living room and just like watch some football or go to the pub even better, more isolated or go to the ground and just fully ignore the fact that it's Christmas whatsoever, or, you know, Boxing Day, which is... Do you, do you guys say Boxing Day? Is that the day after Christmas in America? Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't have Boxing Day here. Like, nobody calls it Boxing Day, but if you... But, like, we do call the day after Christmas during EPL coverage, like, the Boxing Day games. So, I don't know. We, we kind right, of, like... Yeah, it's like it's like, I don't know. It's a holiday we don't celebrate, but we recognize that it's a holiday elsewhere, if that makes sense. Yeah, Boxing Day is basically like nobody knows what the hell is going on. There's no point to it at all. And you all just eat trifle and feel really fat and get drunk. But also there's football on Boxing Day. And yeah, as I was saying, I think it's quite like an escapist thing. I think people find the Christmas season in some ways quite overwhelming. And it's like, we need some football. But it's got, I mean, also Boxing Day and like Christmas have like a kind of football um, significance in like the UK because in like, this is just a, again, possibly a patronizing minor history lesson, but, um, in the, you know, um, in the first world war, there was like a Christmas truce and like people kind of romanticize the role football played in that and, you know, people playing football in the trenches and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a historical reason for it. I've always thought the Christmas truce is like one of the dumbest stories in like war lore and like sports heels. Like they took. Like, I get it. Okay, I get the romanticized story. Like, they took a day or a few hours out to celebrate Christmas, kick around a ball, you know, between the trenches. But then the next day, they went back to killing each other. Like, this is not a happy story. This is like a story of them being tired of killing each other for a day and then going back to killing each other right afterwards. Like, why do we just completely... I don't know. It it seems really dumb to me. Really dumb. But anyways, continue. I I can see how... You're right. I mean, the moral of the story is not necessarily like human goodness wins out in the end, but more like over the course of a horrible four-year war, we had one day where we were nice to each other. But... Basically, we certainly, we certainly have romanticized it here. And, um, you know, it's kind of just, just a bit of a historical, like, precedent for why perhaps we have, like, this kind of tradition of having, like, football and boxing day and so on. Um, but basically now it has actually got, like, out of hand crazy. So, I mean, um, I was looking back at, like, all the seasons and, you know, was trying to compare seasons in the past to, uh, recent seasons and I went kind of back to like seasons in the 80s and they were playing on Boxing Day but you know it was kind of like the, there were games on say uh, you know the 16th and then Boxing Day and then New Year's Day and then you know maybe a week after that so that was relatively you know not not that kind of abnormal in terms of a, a schedule even if it was relatively busy but this year um, although they're not full rounds of uh, games the festive fixture list is wait do they actually call it the festive fixture list no that's just a little flourish by me 
Um, oh, all right. I thought that was like an official term, and I was going to make fun of you for it. But all right, that, that that was. But that's nice work. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, but the, the, I think I think if I'm correct, there are Premier League matches, and as I say, not full rounds of fixtures, but still Premier League matches on the 17th, 18th, 19th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 30th, 31st, first, second, third, and fourth before there's like some relative normality, and it's and we like resume again on the 14th. So basically, like pretty much every day, bar like three or four between the seventeenth and the, and like the fourth, there there's there's like a football match to watch. And you know, I suppose the kind of tradition here is that you know because it's Christmas time and there's not actually that much you're doing. You just you don't have work. You're not you, there's no kind of constraints in your time. You watch more football than you would normally. You don't just watch like your club. You probably watch like any game going basically. So we get the reality that like a lot of British people in the, over the course of the Christmas season probably are going to watch like six or seven hours of televised football or possibly actually go to the game. So it's like a real, it's become like a kind of all consuming, like crazy kind of obsession now in the festive period. So yeah, it's, it's completely, it's completely crazy here. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, as I say, we've, we've, it's not so much a Christmas holiday anymore. It's just like a massive orgy of Premier League football. So I mean I don't know how how it works in in the US like how much do you guys how much do you guys buy into this because I suppose the games are probably well, I'm not sure but I'm assuming that these same games are televised there so do you think that Americans like fans who like watch the Premier League will be just obliterating their festive season for the sake of watching football Oh fuck yeah man I mean so <laughs> here's the here's the thing Boxing Day has always been my favorite day to watch soccer because you get up at like 7 a.m you just like are still bloated and hungover from christmas ridiculousness you know like stuffing your face and drinking too much wine and beer and shit you wake up the next morning at 7 a.m you feel awful but there's a soccer game on so you start so you just like you just resume what you left off doing yesterday just stuffing your face and drinking and you do that all day, and it's wonderful. Like, these are my favorite holidays, the ones that are ostensibly about other things, but really, you just sit and watch sports and get drunk. And in America, we figured that out a long time ago, that this was a good thing. Um, like, the NFL has dominated Thanksgiving ever since the 60s when uh, they had to basically bribe uh, a, a couple of teams to host games on Thanksgiving Day, and they've become like traditions in like Dallas and and uh, and Detroit. And everybody knows that like Thanksgiving, like Thanksgiving and football just go together, and people watch it from like you basically watch it from noon until like midnight, essentially. And so, and now the NBA has done the same thing with Christmas, so. We basically have the same thing. Um, the NHL tried to do this with New Year's Day, too, and has and hilariously failed. Um, college football pretty much owns New Year's Day. But you get... So, like, our, our sports have kind of figured out a long time ago that, like, people don't actually want to be with their families on holidays. Like, they say they want to be with their families and shit, but nobody actually likes spending an inordinate amount of time, uninterrupted time with their family. So if they put sports on TV, you will watch it, and you will not talk to the rest of your family because who the fuck wants to do that? Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. I'm, you sound quite cheerful about it, though. Like, it's kind of like a like a fun thing. I mean, I often think here it's actually like 
it's just very, very excessive football watching, but kind of in a slightly depressing way. So like, you know, people like in their pants on the sofa, like just watching like, you know, Everton, West Brom, because they just don't want to talk to their nan anymore. That's <laughs> a, sorry, their grandma. You just kind of think, I don't know, I'm not sure that's like what Jesus intended. <laughs> Wait, but that's every weekend for me, except without like the not talking to your grandma part, but like watching West Brom versus Everton in your underwear. I mean, that's basically like Saturday mornings for me. So I don't really, I think this is like where it's kind of different for us because like we do all of our soccer watching in the morning mostly. Like, you know, there's one game in the afternoon. So it's always yeah. like this kind of like slightly sleepy activity where you're like on your couch and your day hasn't really quite started yet yet um but i am i i do like the the part of not of like having sports on instead of interacting with your family um that that part i do get very excited about and that's where soccer is unique um is a unique thing for for americans because like if i turn on soccer the rest of my family is going in the other room to watch to watch the nfl or another sport so like soccer is a way for me to signal that i don't want them around me it works well in that regard. Do you, do you even like football or are you just, is it literally just like an indicator? Like almost like, I didn't, that's, that sounds kind of like something you would hear on like planet earth. Like that there's like some sort of like, <laughs> some sort of animal indicator that they like don't want like mating season. So they just flick on like Southampton versus Burnley or something like. The Aranus Gordonus when rejecting the appeals of a mate yeah. turns on the soccer to signal isolation exactly that is exactly <laughs> what i'm what i'm going for here but yeah i mean um yeah it's definitely it's definitely a um a way of like just isolating yourself at, at this most festive of times at the moment we have an advertising campaign like going on that's kind of like it's on all the on the underground on the tube and it's like about you know the fact that like a lot of old people are lonely at christmas and basically like <laughs> what no no i mean wait wait there's, there's a point to this which is that like the sad thing is that like a lot of young people just want to be lonely at christmas they're like they are we deliberately isolate ourselves as young people so like yeah i mean basically our whole lives are doomed to isolation because of the premier league so you know thanks football thanks obama <laughs> wait is the is this advertising campaign like basically telling you to like is it trying to get you to hang out with old people at christmas or is it like oh yeah yeah no oh okay no no it's like no it's telling you to like you know have a phone conversation with an old person at christmas which is obviously a, a, like an admirable aim but i suppose i'm just saying you know there are literally there are thousands and thousands of young people millions even in britain just trying to avoid having conversations with anyone throughout the entire festive period by watching a lot of football basically so what you're saying is soccer is ruining the world's youth. I think soccer is, I think football, soccer, it's just ruining, ruining everything. <laughs> but we'll still podcast about it. You know who else believes that, Will? Um, ISIS. Uh, ISIS believes soccer ruins everything. I hope you cut that. I hope you cut this bit out of the podcast. I don't want to be compared to ISIS. <laughs> Tim, no, leave it in. In no way, shape, or form are you allowed to cut leave this. Leave it in. This, this is gold. <laughs> gold banter. All right. That's enough for today. Um, we we've covered a lot of ground here christmas isis bob bradley and ozil um i'm pretty happy with it but again please send us your feedback um please only only your abuse we don't want to hear nice things we already have too much self-esteem as you can tell from us talking about being alone on the holidays uh you can email us at chips at vice you can follow us on twitter at 
uh, at Chips Podcast. And again, if you include your postal address in an email, I will personally write you a handwritten response uh, that will not include any abuse. I promise not to verbally abuse you via post. Uh, Thanks for listening and enjoy your holiday season. Goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.